Good morning, Village Church. How are you all doing this morning? Wow, that was enthusiastic. Good morning, Village Church. How are you all doing? That sounds a little better. My name is Matt Young, and I'm the worship pastor here at Village. And uh, this morning, I have the opportunity to open the Word of God with you all. We're going to be continuing this morning in our sermon series on the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, for those who aren't aware, are the opening section of one of Jesus' most famous sermons, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And in this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount, in these Beatitudes, Jesus is talking about blessings that will be received that correlate to certain character things that are represented in us and certain behaviors that if we live out these things, these are the correlating blessings that we will receive. And so if you have your Bibles, please open up this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we're going to be looking at verse 7 this morning. Um, And that says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So I want, for just a moment, if you don't mind, I'd love to have you just imagine a scenario with me. Imagine that you're driving and you come upon a scene like this. Now, for those of us who live here in the Chicagoland area, this is a pretty regular occurrence for us. It seems as though road construction happens just about all the time. So it shouldn't be that hard to imagine ourselves in a scenario where we're coming upon road construction that's merging everything into one lane. So... If you're driving along in this situation and you come across this, there's a really good chance that you're going to be somewhat annoyed at the fact that now you're going to be delayed and you're not going to arrive on time to your destination. Well, what we can do in these situations is we can be a little bit annoyed and and we can respond in such a way as to say, well, this isn't what I expected. And we can puff, huff and puff about it or we can just accept the fact that, hey, All these other people are dealing with the same delays that I'm dealing with, so I'm just going to accept it. So it's generally what we do. There may still be a slight annoyance that's going on inside of us, but nothing we can do. Go ahead and accept it, right? So turn on our turn signal, check our blind spot. When it's clear, we move over because safety first. So then we move over into this lane, and we go. No, we stop. But then we go, no, stop again. So we're stopping and going, and it's a line for as far as we can possibly think. And this may be agitating us a little bit more, but all of a sudden, somebody thinks, I don't want to wait in this line. Mm, And they fly past us on the shoulder of the road, cut in front of everyone else, because really, the truth is, the law doesn't apply to that person, right? I mean, and they're actually more important than the rest of us, so why not just go on ahead of everyone else and cut over right in front of the construction zone so that, you know, you can get to where you need to get to, because your priorities are clearly more important than everybody else in this line. So sometimes you might have a thought along the lines of, man, where's a cop when you need one? Maybe I'm the only one that's had that thought. Or sometimes, maybe you've had the thought, which I have, uh, admittedly, I wish I had spike strips so I could throw them out the window. (laughs) Maybe I'm the only one that's had that level of a depraved thought go through your head in that moment. But here's the deal. At the very least, I can imagine that all of us have some sort of thought I hope that driver gets what he or she deserves. I hope they get what they deserve for cutting in front of us, whether it's we want a cop to pull them over or we want them to, oh, bump that guardrail there. Whatever it may be, we want them to receive what we believe they deserve in that circumstance. And here's the reality. I would love to tell you my desire to see these people receive justice is rooted in my deep compassion for all these other drivers who are now going to be delayed to get into their destinations, or or even my concern for the safety of these construction workers. 
Now, the reality is, those things are in my mind to a degree. But I think you and I both know that the main reason I want that person to get what they deserve is because of how their actions have had a negative impact on me. How what they have done has taken my circumstances and my plans and shifted them. Because now I'm delayed even further. You couldn't just fall in line with the rest of us, right? So here's the, another scenario that I'd like for you to imagine with me. Now, in this scenario, you're at home, hanging out with your family, your friends, you have your loved ones around you, and all of a sudden, one of your family members has an emergency. It's a medical emergency, and you think to yourself, I don't have time to wait for an ambulance. I've got to get my loved one to the hospital now. So you throw your loved one in the vehicle as best you're able to, depending on, you know, how heavy that loved one may be. But you get them in the vehicle, you back up out of your driveway, and you take off. And you're going, you've got one thing on your mind. And that one thing is getting your loved one the help that they need in that circumstance. So in this case, we come upon a stop sign. And normally, I know every single person in this room comes to a complete stop behind the stop line when we approach a stop sign, right? But in this case, we decide this stop sign's more of a suggestion because I gotta get my loved one to the hospital. So we may roll through, we may not even roll through, we may just blow through a stop sign because we've got, again, one thing on our minds, getting them the attention they need. So now, you come across this same construction zone. Now you're the driver that goes over to the left lane and passes everyone. You know, maybe polite little waves, trying to make it okay in your mind. But here's the deal. We think to ourselves when we're in this situation, if they knew my circumstances, they would totally understand. They would give me mercy. For sure they would give me mercy. So while you're driving down the shoulder of the road, you may be honking your horn to let them know, got your, your four ways flashing a little bit, just trying to make yourself known to them. And all of a sudden, you hear a siren. So you look up in your rear view, and you've got a police officer who's coming to get you. Now, in this case, initially you think, oh, man, this is going to delay me even worse. I've got to get my loved one to the hospital. But then there may be another thought that enters your mind. Actually, this officer... When I explain the situation, this police officer could provide an escort to get me to the hospital even more quickly so I could possibly arrive before I would have if the officer didn't pull me over in the first place. This could be a good thing. And so that's what you decide to do. The officer approaches the vehicle and you decide to articulate that to them. So here's the deal. We have both of these situations and in each of them, the exact same behavior was on display. In both cases, a car or a driver of a car, I should say, decided to drive down the shoulder of the road and ultimately chose to break the law in doing so. But in one case, we want to see justice delivered. We want to see someone get what they deserve. But in the other case, we want to see mercy dispensed towards that driver. The difference is, other than the obvious that one time you're the driver and one time you're not, but the reality is that, and the, the big difference is the fact that in one case, you're the offended party and in the other case, you're the offending party. It's interesting how often when we are the ones who are offended by someone else's words or actions or something that we have misunderstood even perhaps, when we're offended by them, we want to see justice. But when we are the ones who are offending somebody else and who are doing something that could cause harm or something on someone else's behalf, we expect to receive mercy because if they knew, then of course they would give me mercy. My motivation is so different from that person. That tends to be how we go about this. Now let's jump back into our text then. Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
One of the interesting things about this is that this is the only beatitude where it's a one-to-one relationship. And what I mean by that is you get what you give. You give mercy, you receive mercy. You look at the previous ones that we've gone through, poor in spirit, they don't get poor in spirit. They, they, it says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they will be satisfied. They do correlate, but it's not one-to-one like this is. If you want mercy, be merciful. That's essentially what we're saying. If you're merciful, you'll receive mercy. And so it's going to be imperative if we want to understand this text that we can accurately define what mercy is. And so in order to do that, there are a few other terms that I want to clarify what mercy is not because these terms tend to get worked in and out with each other. So first and foremost, mercy is not justice. Justice is getting what you deserve. In our scenario, that second scenario that I listed, it would mean that the officer issues you a ticket or even possibly arrests you for reckless driving in that moment because by the letter of the law, no matter what your motivation was, you drove on that shoulder of the road when it was illegal in that work zone and he has every right to hold you accountable to that. That would be justice. In a broader sense, it would be something along the lines of you did wrong and now you receive the correlating consequence for the wrong that you did. The other thing that mercy is not is grace. Grace is getting what you do not deserve in a positive sense. In this case, it would be, as I mentioned, our desire might be for the officer to do this. It would be the officer comes up and provides that escort for you in grace. That officer is not obligated to provide that for you in that situation, but because of the grace that the officer is showing you, they provide that escort and allow you to get to the hospital more quickly with your loved one. In a broader context, this would mean you do not deserve this good thing but you receive it anyway. So that's grace. So now we've kind of defined those things, and like I said, these words are often intermixed, and so I wanna just make some distinctions here. So what is mercy then? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. In this case, it would mean that the officer does not issue the ticket or does not arrest you, even though your actions in driving on that shoulder of the road and disobeying the law would have warranted him doing so. So on another side of this, um, there's a definition that the Oxford Dictionary gives where it's more from the dispensing of mercy. And this says, compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. And so as we look at this text, this is the definition that we're going to be working off of as far as what mercy is. So when Jesus is calling us to be merciful, it's, it's going to be primarily in this context. It's going to be showing that compassion and extending that forgiveness even when we might find it to be in our rights or in our power to withhold that. So first and foremost, we want to look at what does this mean then for Jesus' audience? What does he mean? How would they understand, if we're talking about mercy, how would they view mercy? So first and foremost, let's look at the Romans. At this time in history, the Romans were the major world power. So the Romans didn't come to be this world power by playing nice with all the other nations around them. They didn't rise to that level by going around and extending mercy to everyone that they ran into. No, they ruled ruthlessly and they ruled mercilessly. And that's how they became the power that they became. As a matter of fact, one of their philosophers calls mercy the sickness of the soul. They correlated mercy with weakness. And so in their minds, they want nothing to do with mercy. I mean, one thing that I want to just tell you about, they had a law in place called patria opitestis. 
And what this was, it was a law that, one of many laws, by the way, that the Romans had in place that gave the right to the father to basically make the call at the birth of a child whether that child would live or die. If the father gave a thumbs up, that child would live. But if that father didn't want that child to live and turned their thumb upside down, that child would be immediately drowned in that moment in the presence of the father and the mother right there. And that's just one of many laws that they had that just show their lack of mercy and the way that they would find mercy to be repugnant to them. There's nothing about it that they would find desirable. So now let's move to the next group of people that Jesus is addressing here, and that's the Jewish religious elites. Now something about the Romans, what they did, they, they ruled overall, but they allowed and permitted other people groups to somewhat govern themselves so they would allow the Jewish people to govern themselves according to their religious rights as long as it did not contradict Roman rule and Roman law. And so that's what we see playing out at the end of Jesus' life with some of the interactions that take place there. Um, but at any rate, so the Jewish religious elites, these are your Pharisees, your Sadducees, your scribes, what was their view on mercy? Well, they were assigned by God, they were tasked by him to train up God's people, to teach them the ways of his word. And so God had certain parameters, certain commands based on his holiness and his righteousness that he expected of his people. So what these Jewish religious leaders did was they decided, these are God's laws, we're gonna set up our own book, not to contradict God's laws, that wasn't their intention, but to set up parameters to go even more broad beyond what God had so we don't even come close to touching any of that. So what they did then was they valued this book, it's called the Talmud. And the Talmud, they would value their own laws and their own restrictions that were way beyond what God himself had commanded of his people. And they would issue their brand of justice based on their own laws. So as you look at these people, and they're some of the people that Jesus speaks out against most ferociously throughout his time in, in, on the earth, um, they were self-righteous, they were self-serving, and self-glorifying. So if they saw someone, saw a circumstance where they could show mercy, instead of showing mercy, they would go above and beyond to publicly shame and humiliate that person because it put them back in their proper place. Oh, you're down here, see, I'm up here. Yeah, so, so you experienced that shame. What you did was terrible, and because I'm able, I'm gonna hold that against you, I'm gonna lord that over you. So the next group of people then that we can look at and how they respond to mercy is gonna be the crowd. And uh, as we've seen, the crowd over the past few weeks we've seen is generally impoverished people. At this time in history, they didn't have what we're so familiar with here, which is like a middle class where there was basically the rich and the poor and that in-between that we experience here really didn't exist. So, so these are impoverished people, but they're intrigued by what Jesus is saying. And the reality is because the vast majority of the people in this crowd are under the rule of the Romans first and then the Jewish leaders, they are not experiencing a whole lot of mercy being dealt out to them. So as Alex articulated last week in his sermon about blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, he talked about those who um, are impoverished tend to have a front row seat to the injustices that are happening in the world. They would see and experience tangibly the injustice that's there and the lack of mercy that's prevalent amongst those who are leading them. And so the crowd would see that, but they are intrigued by Jesus. Doesn't mean that they're gonna pursue him, it doesn't mean they're gonna follow after him, but at the end of this sermon, it says that the crowds were astonished at his teachings because he taught as one with authority and not as their scribes. So he was absolutely captivating to those who were hearing him speak. 
Some would choose to obey, some would choose to disregard it, some would choose to write it off. But the reality is that crowd is made up of that primary context. So they would see mercy as something that they would long to receive for the most part. Now the next group of people would be the disciples. The disciples are those who have chosen to follow after Jesus. Now, if you spent much time in the scriptures, especially in the gospels, you know as well as I do, did they follow him perfectly? Absolutely not. But their desire was to follow after him. And that's why they're listening and they want to understand what Jesus means by this. It may not always make sense to them, but they want to know. They're choosing to follow after Jesus despite the flesh that they battle, despite the fact that they fall short of what he calls them to over and over again. They still desire in their inmost being to be obedient to that call. So these are the people that Jesus is directly addressing in this sermon. But what about now? How is that relevant to us almost 2,000 years later? Well, in this case, Jesus is trying to get us to consider how we can dispense mercy towards others as well. So the first point in your notes, who is in debt to me? Empathize. Now there are two categories for this. The first one is in reality. There are situations where someone has said something, done something, uh, however the case might be, something, an offense has been taken out against you, and it has caused, in reality, harm. It has caused you to be offended by what they have done. Now, under that, there are two subcategories. One is intentional. That's the first one I want to talk about. You are harmed intentionally in reality, and that means someone deliberately did something, said something, chose an action of some sort, that with the intent to bring you harm, to offend you, to go out of their way to do that. An example of this would be someone breaks into your home in the middle of the night with the desire to harm you, your family, or your belongings. Their intention in stepping into that is to bring you harm. And so that would cause them to be in debt then to you in that situation by them doing that. That's one category in reality where they can be in debt to you. Now the second subcategory here would be unintentional. Now this is a situation where people's intentions were not evil towards you. It wasn't that they wanted to cause you harm, but their actions or their words, whatever they had chosen to do, have a very real consequence in your life and have impacted you in a very real way. This would be a situation kind of like you're walking along the side of the street or on the sidewalk maybe, and, um, and this driver of a car gets distracted for a moment. And so they either look at a billboard or they're texting, but whatever the case is, they lose control and they happen to, to, to come and hit you with their vehicle. Now, it wasn't like that driver was driving around saying, oh, 500 points for this pedestrian, ah, swerve over to get you. That, that wasn't their goal, right? But whether that was their intention or not, the fact remains, you just got hit by a vehicle and you're gonna have some pain to deal with through that. It may just be physical, it could be mental. There are a lot of ramifications for what just happened. But that driver wasn't intentionally going after you. It wasn't their hope to harm you in that moment. But in either case there, it's still someone is in debt to you in reality. There's real consequences, whether they did it on purpose or not. There's still real consequences and you're gonna have to deal with that. Now the second category where people can be in debt to us is in my perception. I can't help but wonder how often in our lives we deal with conflict that we could have completely avoided with a single conversation to clear up a misunderstanding. What this means in my perception is essentially someone didn't do anything to offend us, either accidentally or on purpose, but 
the lens through which I viewed their behavior and the lens through which I took what they said or did caused me to be offended by it. In this case, it could come from a lot of different things. It could be something as simple as your word choice maybe wasn't the best word choice, so I heard it then and I took offense at the words you chose to use. It could be the tone with which you spoke to me. It could be the fact that the way that you said it just rubbed me the wrong way, and, and so I, I took it and ran with it, and it became something that it was never intended to be. Maybe it's your demeanor. Maybe your body language. Maybe your posture made me think, oh, man, they're coming down on me. This is really aggressive. Or their facial expression that they may not even be aware is happening, but you perceived it through a certain lens, and you saw it to be something that brought offense against you. Could even be nothing that they have said or done at all. It could be a situation where somebody said that somebody did this to that person, and next thing you know, someone comes to you and says, hey, so-and-so said this about you, or so-and-so did that. Can you believe it? All of a sudden, now you're taking offense, and you don't even know if that actually happened. But these are the things that we can do to bring conflict out of really nothing because of the way that we are viewing these things. Here's the reality, though. In both these cases, whether someone's in debt to us in reality or just in our perceptions, there's still a relationship that's been damaged and there's a response that we are required to give. And this response can be seen in the blessing. So bless, who do I need to release? Again, let's look at our text. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So if Jesus is wanting to release us as mercy givers onto this world, then how are we supposed to do that? And, and in what ways? Like, who are we supposed to give this to? Who do we extend mercy to? Here's the reality of what Jesus wants to make known in this text. The kingdom of heaven must be made visible in each and every one of your relationships. Each and every one. So, at the end of the day, we've got to show mercy to each and every relationship to each and every person with whom we have a relationship. So here's the deal. There may be situations, we talk often here at Village about three of the worst wounds that people can experience. They're daddy wounds, sex wounds, and church wounds. Maybe one of those three resonates deeply with you on a personal level. Maybe you're sitting here today and, and you just never felt like you could meet your dad's expectations growing up years ago. Or maybe just yesterday you had a conversation with your dad that made you feel bad. Or your mom or some other authority figure, some other family member whom you admire, whom you look up to, who, and their behavior has resulted in, in you being hurt and offended by what they did. An unmet expectation there. Maybe it's a sex wound. Maybe based on a decision that you made and you're dealing with scars from that or maybe a decision you didn't make but someone else's sinful decision impacted you in the way that they treated you sexually as an object or, or just used you and, and you're dealing with maybe years of built up resentment and frustration with that. That's a real hurt, a real pain that you might be dealing with. It could be a church wound. It could be a, a pastor whom you trusted and they led in such a way that you felt utterly used. And when they were done, you know, using you to fulfill their purposes, they didn't even have a thing to do with you. And so you're dealing with resentment towards the church and the way that you feel like you were burned by the church in that capacity. Maybe it's even your kids. Whether you have grown kids or little kids, they can be defiant and they can choose words that can cut to the core and that can hurt deeply. Maybe you gotta release your kids. Maybe it's a friend that you've been estranged with for a long time. You don't even remember what caused the initial fallout. It may have been something very small, but over the years, it's built up and built up 
in any case, that person is in debt to you from your perspective. I want to talk about one other thing as well in this category, and this is what happens when someone comes to you and basically they're in persistent sin. They're persisting in sin. They're living in sin actively, and they basically say to you, you have to show me mercy by putting up with my sin. Here's the reality. I don't know if any one of us has ever heard someone say those words, but we've heard a slight twist of that, right? If you love me, you'll accept me for who I am. And they're not meaning for who I am. They're meaning you'll accept the behaviors that I choose to pursue. You'll accept the lifestyle that I'm pursuing and actively living in, even though it's sinful. If you truly love me, that's all a part of who I am. And so you would love me for who I am and you would accept this part of my life. Here's the reality. What they're asking you to show them is not mercy. They're asking you to excuse their sin, just allow them to continue in it. And here's the truth. When it comes to mercy, it never enables sin, but it always releases debts. So in this situation, you have an opportunity to still show mercy to that person. You show them love and mercy and gentleness in the way that you approach them in this, but you can show them mercy and love by correcting their misunderstanding of what mercy and love actually are. Again, do it in humility, do it with gentleness, but you affirm your love despite the fact that they're accusing you of being unloving and unmerciful because you're not allowing them to continue to wallow in their sin. So I just wanted to make that point of clarification because um, I think that's something that if you haven't run into it, there's a good chance you will. I know I've run into that in multiple occasions and we need to affirm our love for people and show them mercy, but we show mercy as God defines it, not as we do in our fallen minds and in our fallen hearts where we like to try and justify all kinds of things, myself included. So when we run into people in these situations, we have two possible results. We have two possible um, choices to make. Our options are we can respond in arrogance and entitlement, which will lead to holding grudges and bitterness in our souls. That's an option, but I'm going to tell you from firsthand experience, it's not a good one. Not only is it in direct defiance to what Jesus commands us to, so that in and of itself should be enough motivation, but it will also, I can't say any other way other than it will start to destroy your soul if you allow yourself to go down that path. And then I say that from firsthand experience. There was a time when I chose to take this approach. There was a season in my life where I had been offended and I chose, I said, look, they're wrong. The, my offenders are wrong in the way that they approached me and so I started to get puffed up about it. I didn't call it that in my head. I thought it was a righteous indignation, right? They wronged me. Well, this little seed of bitterness that I had planted in my heart in that moment by making that decision, it sprang up faster than you could ever imagine. And I allowed this to become all-consuming to me. It robbed me from sleep at night. And, and I, I literally, I could not think about anything other than this. I would go to work. I would try to focus on my work tasks. And all I'd be thinking about, my mind just kept going back to how I'd been wronged. How I'd been wronged. But how, why did they wrong me? How did this happen? I've been wronged. I'd be at home, hanging out with my friends, hanging out with my family. I'd be out and about. It didn't matter what I was doing. This was all-consuming for me. It became an obsession. I would read the Bible and I would look for passages that talked about the vengeance and the righteous wrath of our God against evildoers. And in my mind, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, that's what's gonna be shown to these people who have wronged me. Yes, it's disgusting. It was absolutely, and this, and I, in my head, I was justified in doing this because I had been wronged. 
It was absolutely, I had to be absolutely miserable to be around. I know I was miserable internally because the Holy Spirit continued to convict me about what I was doing, but I kept trying to justify it. No, 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 it's so bad. What they've done is so bad. I, I, it's, I can't even imagine that. I plead with you as a brother in Christ and as one of your pastors, don't choose this path. It's just not worth it. It's not worth having your life suffocated because you've made the choice to hold on to that bitterness and resentment. So we do have another response, but before I go into that, I'd like to just say, one of the blessings here is the temporal blessing that we receive. So ultimately, what Jesus is getting at here, the mercy that is promised is eschatological in nature, which means it's gonna come in the end. It has eternal value. So what that means is when I stand before God, I'm gonna stand before him and receive his mercy by not being condemned for the sins that I committed in my life. That's the ultimate fulfillment of this blessing. But there's also a temporal blessing here. And that temporal blessing is that as we release others through mercy, we also release ourselves from carrying the weight of that baggage and from allowing our souls to be damaged by our own resentment and bitterness. I plead with you guys, obey the Lord. Learn from my disobedience, please, and don't go down that path. I saw signs in my heart that it was depths of depravity that I didn't know I was capable of as I allowed that to happen. So the other response that we can give, the other possibility is that in humility and compassion, we can give mercy. The reality is that the blessing that Jesus is promising is found in the dispensing of mercy. So church, do you want to receive mercy? If you do, then give it away. That's what Jesus is saying here. You want to receive mercy from God? Give it away to others. The reality is, if you look at in light of the mercy that we've received, how can we not? How can we not give away mercy? And that brings us to point number three, recalibrate and dismantle. Am I missing the point? In all of these Beatitudes, we see that Jesus is recalibrating a notion that people have. And in this case, as I mentioned in that context, mercy was not a value that people pursued. We wanted to receive it, but we sure didn't want to give it out. And I think that's just as true for us today as it was for them. That in most cases, we want to receive, we want to be the recipients of mercy all the time. But it's harder to just give that away when we've been wronged on a deep level, or at least when we feel that we have. So again, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So being merciful towards others is a few different things. First and foremost, it's counterintuitive. We find, as we look through the scriptures, that we, and, and as we look at our own lives, that we are sinful from birth. We come out of the womb sinners. And I, anyone here who has little kids or who has had little kids can testify to this because I feel like the majority of most little kids' first words are no. And they like to put that in practice often when you tell them, hey, you need to obey. No. Well, you need to pick up your toys. No. You see this defiance, this willful disobedience, even at a young age, it's evident. So it's counterintuitive to us because our instinct tells us Guard yourself, protect yourself. If they harm you, then they deserve to feel some pain too. It's only right, you know? They did this, it's, it's equal, it's the right thing to do. They should receive that. So it's counterintuitive. And because it is counterintuitive, because in our depravity, we live in that state, it's also countercultural. Because outside of those who've been bought with the blood of Jesus, 
mercy is not something that is going to be readily dispensed. It's not going to be something that people are going to generally pursue to give. And so, since that's the case, it's counterintuitive to us, and then it's countercultural because our culture is filled with, with people who, who don't see the value in giving mercy like that. Oftentimes, we struggle to see it. So, of course, those who have not been exposed to the grace and mercy of our God are going to have that much of a harder time displaying that. And again, it was countercultural in those days, and it's countercultural in our day as well. The next thing that being merciful towards others is, is how God responds to us. When we look throughout the scriptures, it is so evident that God is so merciful towards us. You can look back at Adam and Eve. The moment their lips touched that fruit that they were commanded by God not to eat of, the moment it touched, he would have been justified in striking them dead. But he didn't. In his mercy, he went ahead and sustained their lives. And then in his grace, he sacrificed an animal to provide a covering for them because now they'd been exposed to a shame, which was the first time in history that that emotion had been experienced. Shame. So he showed grace and mercy there. How about we fast forward even just a few chapters in the book of Genesis? We get to the flood. A lot of us are familiar with the flood account, but one of the things that the text says before the flood happened says that God searched all the earth and he saw that every inclination of man's heart was all evil all the time. That's a pretty awful description, isn't it? That every inclination of man's heart was all evil all the time. That's pure wickedness. And yet, God chose to spare Noah and chose to spare Noah's family. And in doing so, once again, he spared the human race despite the fact that our sin and our rebellion was flying in the face of his righteousness and his goodness to us. Now let's fast forward. Those are just a few Old Testament ones. How about the New Testament? We see Saul. Saul is going around. He's giving approval to the murder of Christians. He's going around seeking people who are claiming Christ to put them to death and to give approval to others who are putting them to death. And while he's on one of these journeys to go put Christians to death, Jesus penetrates right where he is on his path, stops him dead in his tracks, he goes blind there, and Jesus says, Saul, why do you persecute me? But out of that moment, not only does he get his sight restored, but Jesus gave him a whole new trajectory for his life. He went from being a Christian killer to being an apostle to all the Gentiles, to being one of the most prolific evangelists you could ever see. And now, as you read your New Testament, the vast majority of the epistles that are contained there, the letters that are written, were penned by his hand through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's mercy and grace bestowed upon him. And we see that thread. Those are just a few examples. It is so prevalent throughout the Bible, throughout the narrative of Scripture, and throughout all of human history, that it's how God responds to us. The next thing, since it is how God responds to us, it's also how we reflect God's character towards others. In this world, as I said before, God wants us to live with kingdom values in place, that we are to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth in that way and live that way. So if God responds to us with utter mercy, then who are we to hold mercy from other people, to withhold that when he has explicitly called us to it? And then lastly, it's the expected response. Being merciful towards others is the expected response when we encounter the mercy that God has given to each of us. It's the only way that we can respond that's reasonable in light of that mercy. So what? In light of this, how then do I become merciful? If it's expected that I become merciful in this life, then how do I do it? First and foremost, start by immersing yourself in the word of God. 
See, the word of God not only shows his great mercy to humanity throughout, as I've mentioned through a few, just a few examples, but it also will show the depths of your own depravity, of your own wickedness, of the fact that we are all, and by you I mean me too, we are all sinful people in need of God's mercy and his grace. And as we open the word, we see his righteousness, we see his goodness, and yet his great mercy bestowed to wicked people from the beginning, wicked people including ourselves. Sometimes it's hard to call ourselves that. It's hard to acknowledge our brokenness and our wickedness before the Lord. But when you look at the scriptures, it is undeniable that that's what's present inside of our hearts apart from Christ. So once you immerse yourself in the word of God, then you will be able to consider that great mercy that you've received from Christ. And as I mentioned, if you consider the mercy that you've been shown, the amount of offenses that you may have taken on from others, regardless of how egregious their actions may be or their words may be, it doesn't even compare to the mercy that God has shown you from the beginning even to this point in your life. His mercy is so incredible and as you start to see the mercy of Christ, the mercy of of God through Christ dispensed to you and to me, as we see that, we are then enabled to go out and show that same mercy. Another way that we can help to display this mercy in our lives is by considering the mercy that we've received in Jesus. Consider, or, I'm sorry, is by holding others to that same standard that we hold ourselves. If we were to give other people the same benefit of the doubt that we give ourselves, if I were to say, you know what, it's so easy for me in my actions, well, you, no, 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 you misunderstood me. I, I didn't mean it like that. But then when someone else says something to me, can you believe what they just said? I can't believe, Lord, they said, what? What? They said that to me? I can't believe. We're so quick to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and to say, no, 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 I didn't mean it like that, even though there may be a small part of us that did mean it like that. But we're quick to release ourselves, but we tend to want to hold others to a standard that's beyond the standard which we hold ourselves. At the end of the day, golden rule, treat others as you would want to be treated. You want others to extend mercy to you, right? So then extend mercy to others as well. Give them that benefit of the doubt. And lastly, We have to choose to give mercy away. When all is said and done, it still requires a choice. We can look in light of what Jesus has shown us, the mercy that he's poured out in our lives, and we can respond, like I said earlier, in two ways, in arrogance or in humility. We can respond with entitlement or with compassion. The reality is we have to choose to make that decision, to respond in the way that Jesus commands us to, to respond in light of his great mercy to us, we have to then give that same mercy out to others. I'm gonna close with a story of a pastor. His name is Davey Blackburn, and he's a pastor in the Indianapolis area. And um, he has a regular daily routine and um, gets up at 4.30, spends some time in the word and prays and seeks the Lord for the day and then goes to the gym. And while he's at the gym, his wife and his son would be at home and um, he'd come back from the gym, come home and then go into his office. Well, one day he came back from the gym and things seemed a little bit off. He found his wife Amanda laying down unconscious, covered in blood in their home. Now at this point, Amanda had been pregnant and Davy thought something's gone terribly wrong with the pregnancy. He, but he noticed she was breathing shallowly so he said, we'll get her to the hospital you know, he got an ambulance, had her taken to the hospital, rallied his family around, and they prayed. They pleaded with the Lord for his will to be done in this circumstance. 24 hours later, both his wife and his unborn child lost their lives. They were no longer around. 
What Davy didn't realize was it was not a pregnancy complication. What happened was three men broke into his home while he was away, sexually assaulted his wife, and then murdered her in cold blood. Now listen to how Davy responded to their actions. I wasn't ever going to feel like forgiving them. You're never going to feel like forgiving somebody for doing something to you that is irreparable. So what I realize is that forgiveness is a decision. And it's not just a one-time decision. It's a daily decision. Every day, I have to wake up and I have to decide to forgive. And here's why I decided to forgive. It's because bitterness and unforgiveness is going to be a cancer to no one else except to me. And it's going to eat me up inside if I hang on to that. And personally, I can attest that that's the truth when you hang on to bitterness. So he says, on this side of eternity, who knows what's going to happen. But on the other side of eternity, Jesus is going to restore and make all things bad completely untrue. All I have to do is trust that he's got everything under control. And then this blows my mind, but this is his response. I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I really hope I get the opportunity to share the gospel with these guys. Now, how do you go from people who murdered your spouse and a child in cold blood that they did what they did to her, how do you get to a place where you want them to spend eternity reconciled to Jesus along your side, by your side? The only way that happens is when you see the mercy of God shown to you and you see their behavior in light of that great mercy too. And it's through the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that happens.